I'm going to uh, begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we give you thanks and we give you praise that you have revealed yourself in your word. And we're in wonder and amazement. There's such a variety of different forms, genres, um, different ways that you've communicated with your people. And we pray that we could take it in. We pray that the Spirit would help us. Um, we pray that you would give us soft and receptive hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so I have uh, renewed my vow to get through this as a uh, brisk survey course. Uh, I believe last lesson uh, we spent our entire time on First Thessalonians alone, just uh, the fourth chapter uh, on the rapture. Um, and then, uh, so we're going to circle back to Colossians, which we skipped the last time, and then hopefully we'll get through four books today, but we'll see. I, I also have some modest expectations for myself. And then um, I'm actually going on vacation for the next uh, four weeks after this Sunday, and then uh, we'll pick up again in January, so there'll be a considerable gap. I apologize for that. All right, so let's go dive into Colossians. Colossians was written um, by Paul in response to the presence of false teachers in the Colossian church. We're not exactly sure what the false teaching was. All of the epistles is a little bit like reading or listening to one half of a phone conversation. Um, Paul makes uh, reference to some um, heretical views, uh, which seems to be a combination of pagan and Jewish beliefs. But the, uh, the overall point is that uh, it was taking the Colossian believers away from the centrality of Christ. And so that's what Paul really wants to hammer home. So the gospel then in Colossians is the supremacy of Christ over all things. He wants the Colossian believers to hold fast to the head who is Christ. And uh, when we meditate on Christ, then everything else comes into focus. All of our other problems and questions get resolved. And um, here I want to... Uh, I think the passage we're going to read is the most famous passage in Colossians. I think it's really amazing because it shows you that Christ is supreme over two arenas or two realms, over creation and new creation. The first paragraph is creation. The second paragraph is new creation. And uh, this right here is the whole of the gospel. <laughs> um, you could summarize it right there. Creation, new creation... And um, it's, I think, a paradigm that not a lot of um, contemporary, modern evangelicals are uh, deeply familiar with, so it's, a good, it's good to go into it. All right, so let's begin. First, he is supreme over creation. Let me read to you verses 15 through 17. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. There's so much there, I wish I could go through it phrase by phrase, but let me just highlight a few. First it says, He is the image of the invisible God. So Christ is the image of God. Um, that immediately brings you back to the second commandment, right? If you remember in the second commandment, we are not to make an image of God. But actually, if you look at the text carefully, um, it doesn't just say we're to make an image. It says no, um, I like the King James Version, no graven image. Um, the word graven means carved. It means created or man-made. 
So the prohibition there is that human beings are not to create their own image of what they imagine God to be, not that there is no image of God at all, um, because God in the end, through the course of redemptive history, he will provide his own image, his perfect image, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, and who could have imagined that the image of God would be Jesus of Nazareth? Um, because the Israelites in the wilderness, what did they imagine God as? This golden calf, this um, figure, powerful and precious. But in the end, God's image, perfect image, was this, um, this uh, person born in poverty in this nobody town who spoke with a country accent, um, Jesus of Nazareth. All right, so the next phrase I want to highlight, he's the firstborn of all creation. Um, this is part of uh, a huge controversy in the early church. There was a group called the Arians. The Arians was a, was, was a group of Christians, heretical Christians, who said that Jesus was not divine, but he was, um, he was just another created being. And so, so this is one of the verses they would cite. He is the firstborn of all creation. The word firstborn there meaning firstborn son. Um, but this does not mean Jesus is a created being. It's a metaphor. Um, in the ancient world or in all traditional societies, the firstborn son isn't just the fact that they were created the first among their siblings, but they were the preeminent. They were the most important child. I'm the firstborn son of my dad. So he would always tell me, you're the most important child um, in the family. He would also say he's the firstborn son of his father. So he would always tell me, you're the firstborn of the firstborn. He's like, do you know what that means? And then he would say, one day you will convene a council of all your cousins and you will sit at the head of the table. <laughs> That has that has yet to happen, but um, but it's it's a metaphor of Christ's preeminence over all creation. And then um, there's this phrase: "All things were created through Him and for Him." I wish I could just spend a lot of time on this. It's an amazing concept. First of all, all things were created through Him. Jesus is the beginning. He's the Creator of all things. Right, this incredible universe that is beyond human imagination, trillions of galaxies, each galaxy containing billions of stars. Jesus is the creator. And then it says all creation is for him, meaning he's the end. He's the beginning and he's the end. The very purpose, the reason why creation exists is for the glory of Jesus. Um, let's go on. Uh, verses 18 through 20, this is new creation. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So you see this idea of new creation um, in the middle of verse 18. It says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that is um, mirroring Verse 15, right? The firstborn of all creation. Um, and so Christ is the head of creation. He's the head of new creation. Now, uh, this idea of new creation is very significant. Um, and we've talked about this quite a bit. In uh, um, Actually, we talked about it a lot in the last lesson on First Thessalonians, that the Bible's paradigm of reality is not two worlds. So it's not creation... Um, it's not creation versus uh, heaven. Right? 
right? Where our creation is like this material, earthly existence, and then one day God is going to rescue us and take us up to this ethereal, cloudy, um, non-physical existence, this floaty existence. But uh, what the Bible teaches us is creation, and then it leads to new creation. So here, what happened is God created the world, um, the physical universe. He created human beings. All of it was good. But then because of Adam and Eve, uh, they plunged creation into death, decay, injustice, evil, disease, all kinds of um, uh, hu- uh, humanity ruined creation. We vandalized creation. And then what God is going to do is not throw creation away. And then um, uh, that was you know, a, a, a bad experiment. And then we go up into this ethereal heaven. But God is going to renew creation. He's going to redeem creation. He's going to retrieve everything that was good and beautiful in the way it was supposed to be and then wash away all the evil and injustice. And in that sense, the word new here doesn't mean um, new as in different, but new as in renewed, right? So, for example, um, when you take a shower, what do you say sometimes? You say, somebody says to you, how do you feel? You, you say, I feel like a new person. Does that mean um, you're a completely different person than who you are? No, there's continuity. You are still you, just all the grime and the guck and the, the, the disgusting sweat <laughs> um, is washed away, right? So that's the new creation. Um, so that's the gospel. The gospel is that Christ is coming to create a new world. So uh, the Bible's um, paradigm is not two worlds, uh, but but two ages. Okay. Um, so let me go on. Um, it says he is the head of the body, the church. Um, so this resurrected world to come um, is not just going to be individuals, but it's going to be a redeemed people. Um, we're not just like um, living as individuals in this new created reality, but uh, the beginning of new creation. And I'm going to talk about that in the next in the next thing on Second Thessalonians. But the beginning of the new creation is this new redeemed people. We'll, we'll, let me save that for the next uh, section. Um, and then it says here, uh, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. I think this is really profound. The essence of the new creation is reconciliation. That's the heart of the gospel. What is reconciliation? Reconciliation is different than forgiveness. So in forgiveness, someone commits a sin against you, someone does something wrong against you, and then you decide that you're not going to seek revenge. You're not going to inflict punishment but you're going to still desire and wish them well. You forgive them. It's a unilateral act, but it's possible that in forgiveness, the, re- the, re- the relationship is still not restored. Reconciliation goes above and beyond forgiveness. Reconciliation is you have a broken relationship and it is restored, repaired. And uh, this is the most powerful, most amazing paradigm um, for Salvation of what's awaiting us in the new creation, and uh, the the paradigm, uh, the the metaphor I would, uh, the example I would give is, um, let's say your friend comes to your house, and you have this beautiful vase, and then they um, knock it down and it shatters, 
right? And then you say, I forgive you. That's great. You know, I'm not going to ask money from you to repair the uh, the vase. But nevertheless, your beautiful vase, you know, let's say this is your vase that your grandmother gave you. This irreplaceable vase is now destroyed and gone. What the Bible is promising is that one day that vase will be restored. All the pieces will fit back together again somehow. Um, and this is the longing of, of, of our hearts. Um, I, I recall a, a story of Michael Morton. I, I shared this a long time ago in a sermon once. But uh, Michael Morton, he was um, arrested and then convicted of murdering his wife. But um, in fact, he was innocent. And then he went to jail for 25 years on a wrongful charge. The prosecutor hid evidence that would exonerate him. They did all kinds of dirty tricks. And so because of this grave, grave injustice, he spent 25 years in jail. And then through the Innocence Project, uh, they were uh, using DNA testing. They were, to pr- they were able to prove definitively that the murderer was somebody else and that he was, he was innocent. Um, and then they released him from jail for tw- after 25 years. He had a son. That little boy was like four years old when the murder happened. The boy grew up all of his life thinking what? Thinking, number one, his mom was brutally murdered. Number two, his father was the murderer. So he had no relationship with his father. He would, uh, uh, at the beginning, Michael Moran would write letters. And then um, the son slowly started to disengage. And you can understand, his father murdered his mother. He can't have a relationship with this man. And then he was released from prison, and then it was really hard for the son to change his understanding. Actually, this is my father. He did nothing wrong. He loved me this whole time. Michael Morton would say, I mean, he's in prison. He had nothing to give to his son. So he knew his son loved mazes, so he would just make these meticulous mazes in prison and then send them to his son. That was the only thing he could do. And then they're trying to repair their relationship now after 25 years. But who can give Michael Morton his life back? Nobody. You know, he was awarded $1 million by the state for wrongful conviction and prosecutorial misconduct. What does that matter? The million dollars is nothing. No one can give, can give Michael Morton his life back. But the Bible promises he will get everything back. That's what the new creation is, right? All the broken relationships will be restored. Everything sad will come untrue. Uh, Michael Morton is a believer. He became a Christian in prison. And so that is his great hope. Um, I think that's the most beautiful story that we could want and desire. So this reconciliation is vertical. It's between God and man. And it's horizontal. It's uh, broken friendships. All of us suffer broken friendships to one degree or another. I feel like the moment you make somebody a friend, um, there's a clock ticking. And eventually that friendship will fall apart. Uh, because of distance, because of uh, sin, um, everything is falling apart, right? Um, but the Bible gives us great hope that there will be restoration, reconciliation, uh, families, racial injustice. We see in the news, there's racial hatred, racial violence. What is going on in this world? Why do people hate each other? Why do people think of um, the other as their enemy that they have to destroy? The Bible promises there's going to be reconciliation. And through what? By making peace by the blood of the cross. It Only through Christ's suffering um, substitutionarily for us on the cross. So, there it is. We're waiting for the new creation to come. That leads me to this uh, Second Thessalonians. Any questions so far? How are we doing in terms of time? Okay. Maybe we'll just get through 
three bucks. <laughs> we'll see. All right. All right. All right, let's go to Second um, Thessalonians. Or wait, but first, let me pause. A true pause. Is there any questions about this idea of new creation? What is awaiting us is not heaven, but new creation. All right. Second um, Thessalonians, because remember we skipped First Thessalonians last time. Second uh, Thessalonians continues the same theme in First Thessalonians. It's all about the second coming of Jesus. Um, the church in Thessalonica had all kinds of questions and confusions about the second coming. Some thought it had already happened. Some thought that um, uh, the deceased believers were going to miss the second coming. They were uh, irredeemably lost. And so um, Paul is writing to um, console them and also teach them correctly. But before we get into that, I just want to talk a little bit about... Well, I should have left this up, but... Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the idea, the theology of the second coming. Okay, so uh, what is that? The second coming of Christ. Um, all right. So this is a big paradigm. You have to understand this. If you don't understand this, then you're missing the whole gospel, right? That's how crucial the second coming is, okay? Um, so it goes back to the Old Testament, right? Um, how, how should I put it this way? Okay, let me let me do it this way. Um, all right. So remember the story I told you, right? God created the world good and beautiful, but then what happened is um, Adam and Eve plunged the world into uh, sin and death and injustice. So you have what the Bible calls this present age. Okay, and it's marked by evil, injustice, disease, death. Things are not the way it was supposed to be, the way God designed it, okay? So then the Old Testament, all the prophets, all the Psalms, um, uh, even in the Torah, uh, through the narratives, it's constantly telling us this is not the way it was supposed to be, but a Savior is coming, the Messiah. So, the Messiah will come. And he will make everything right. Um, he will rescue his people Israel. Because you remember the story of Israel. Israel is constantly surrounded by their enemies, the, uh, the Philistines, um, the Arameans, the Midianites, and, and so forth. They're surrounded by their enemies. He's going to vanquish them. He's going to lay them all flat. And then this little tiny country, this little tiny nation of Israel, he's going to make it into a worldwide empire that covers the whole face of the earth. So that the promise in the uh, Old Testament will come true, that the glory of God will cover the, face, uh, will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. And he will end disease, he will end death, there will be no more injustice, because he will destroy all evildoers. Um, sin, somehow sin will be forgiven. And then he will usher in the coming age, which will last forever and ever and ever. It will be an eternal age, right? Um, the age to come. Okay? So, 
it's just, this paradigm should be familiar, right? Because remember I said the Bible is not a two-world uh, paradigm. It's a two-age paradigm, right? God is not going to throw this world away. He's going to renew it, wash it of evil, and then uh, make it as it was always intended to be. So two ages, and the dividing, the fulcrum of the two ages is the coming of the Messiah. That's the whole Bible. Let me just read you one passage, right? Um, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of the most important Messianic Psalms. It, it, there's a reason why it's 1 and 2 uh, at the very beginning to, to frame the whole thing. Um, all The book of Psalms, I mean. But let me read you Psalm 2. This is David writing this. And he's, he's recalling the moment of his coronation, okay? I will tell of the decree, the Lord, this is God, um, Yahweh, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that, uh, uh, let me pause there for a moment. The king of Israel was in, in a special way God's son. If you remember um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is the Davidic covenant. God says that David's son will be his son. He will uh, discipline him and, and watch over him. And so the son, so this is why when Jesus says son of God, um, that label wasn't, people weren't thinking second person of the Trinity. People were thinking Davidic king. That's the title of the Davidic king. He's the son of God. So the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Um, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, a lot of modern day Christians don't like verse 9. Um, because we're sort of uncomfortable. We think of the Messiah as this sort of um, hippie teacher who preaches peace and love. But you have to understand, um, only modern people who live in the safety of the, of the American state can sort of think that. If you're an ancient person, you're constantly under oppression, evil, conquerors like Romans who crucified um, unruly Jews. You would want this. You want evil injustice to be smashed to be destroyed, annihilated, right? So that's the Messiah. He's this heroic warrior who's going to conquer um, the enemies of Israel. And this is why when Jesus of Nazareth came onto the scene, and he basically, I mean, first he's a little bit subtle about it, but he basically declares himself to be the Messiah, the long-awaited the, the one, the Savior, who's going to change the whole reality of the universe, the present age will end, the evil age, and the age to come will be ushered in, the messianic age. He w- but he came as what? A suffering servant who died on a Roman cross. This, this was mind-boggling. This was unfathomable to the Jewish people. That doesn't make any sense at all. Because first of all, how can the coming of the Messiah, how can Jesus be the coming of the Messiah, when so many of the things that mark the present age continue? Right? Namely, the cross... But then after Jesus comes and dies, evil continues. The Romans are still in power. They're still in justice. Families are still broken up. Where is this age? They they were expecting a Jewish Alexander the Great. And instead they got um, someone who was captured and then horrifically, shamefully crucified. So the Pharisees scoffed. The disciples were deeply confused. They thought, they saw Jesus' miracle. So they said, okay, he's a bit of an unconventional general but he's going to lay them flat with his miraculous powers. And then when he was crucified, disciples were mind, they were just absolutely, they didn't, it was like up is down, down is up. Um, there's this great passage in, um, in Luke, the road to Emmaus, the two disciples were walking back home. 
um, after the crucifixion. And then Jesus comes alongside of them and he's, he says, you know, why are you so downcast? And they said, the one we thought who was the Messiah was, uh, was crucified. And they're all just like, they're so down and beat down, right? Because they couldn't understand it. So, um, the Bible, the New Testament tells us something truly shocking. That the Old Testament in no way, um, just reading the Old Testament in a plain way you couldn't have anticipated. Which is that um, the Messiah is going to come in two stages. And so, what happened? Well, the Old Testament... When the Old Testament was looking at the coming of the Messiah, there's something called the prophetic horizon. Did I write that on my notes? Um, let me write this word down. Okay, so this is a, this is a very important concept. When you're standing and you're looking out at the horizon, right? The distant horizon. Let's say you see, so th- this is the horizon, right? Let's say you see two objects, right? Um, and they look like what? They look like they're right next to each other, right? But then you start walking to the horizon. And as you get to the horizon, this is what happens, right? One of them is actually closer, much closer to you. The other one is still quite further out. But they look like they were the same at the same point because you were standing from so far away. So this is sort of a metaphor to help us understand the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament, when they were thinking about the coming of the Messiah, what they saw as a single event was actually two events separated in time. And so here is the um, here is the New Testament paradigm. So this is the basic paradigm of of of, uh, of the Old Testament. Okay, this is the New Testament story. Okay, very very similar. But you have this present evil age. Okay. Um, you have the coming of the Messiah, right? Which is Jesus. You have his his birth, his ministry, and then his death on the cross and his resurrection. Okay, so all of that. But the present evil age continues, meaning there's still death, there's still injustice, there's still violence, there's still broken families and so forth. But he ushers in a new age. The age to come. And the age to come will last forever and ever. And it'll be fully consummated. It'll be fully realized in the second coming. When he comes again. So that he comes the first time in weakness, in mercy, and then he comes the second time in judgment in glory and in power. And so what you have then is you have truly the definitive end of the present evil age. No more evil, no more injustice, no more death, period. It's all gone. It's all washed away. And then you have the age to come that will last forever and ever. And what is this period right here? This is the Old Testament. This is the new creation that is awaiting us forever and ever in the, in the future. And this is the New Testament period. So what is that then? This is the overlap of the ages. Does that make sense? We're in between the ages. So we experience some of the age to come. Remember, remember that great passage, um, 2 Corinthians 5, 17? What does Paul say? He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? The old is gone, the new has come. 
you are already living and experiencing the new creation. You are it. It's hap- it's already happened. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> why 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 is my family still broken? Why is there still sin and evil in, in my life? And that's because the present evil age continues on, right? The powers, uh, 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 the powers of Satan still exist, still still persist. Um, so in the so theologians have this concept called the already but not yet. So we are already in the new creation, but not yet. We have already destroyed the uh, the the old evil age, but not yet. So we live in this between age, and we're awaiting the second coming, and we have this great hope. And so that's what eschatology is all about. Eschatology, I told you, is the study, the theology of the end of time, the end of history. You know, it sort of has this feeling of, this flavor of, like, esoteric, you know, who is the Antichrist, this complicated timetable. It's not at all. All it is is we're waiting for the, the, the Jesus to usher in his full kingdom in all of its fullness for him to come as truly the Jewish Alexander the Great, not a, I mean, way beyond Jewish Alexander the Great, to truly vanquish Satan and evil. And so, um, eschatology is something that we should long for and hope for, and um, we're dreaming of. All right. Um, let, me, let me say one more thing. So, in the first coming of Christ, he resurrected from the dead, right? So, the resurrection is a very, very important concept. Um, All right, why do you think resurrection is so crucial to the Messianic age? The reason is because, let's go back to the story of Michael Morton. Michael Morton's going to die one day, right? His son will die. So where is this reconciliation going to happen if he's dead? The resurrection means that everyone who's dead will rise. Everyone in Christ who is dead will rise, and everything will be redeemed. And so the, the age to come is a resurrected world. The greatest evil in this world is death. Death is separation. Death is, um, is, is the end of love. And when you love somebody, you never want them to die. But one day they will die or you will die. But the resurrection means that you, everyone, will, everyone in Christ will come back to life. But what was confusing is that the Messiah um, resurrected from the dead as a single individual. And again, remember, the prophetic horizon. The Old Testament prophets looked at the resurrection as happening to all of God's people. So when Jesus rose from the the dead by himself, everyone's like, I don't understand. This is why Paul, Paul who's a master theologian of the Old Testament, he's riding on the road to Damascus. Jesus, who he thought was dead, says, I am Jesus. Paul's like, I don't understand. He goes to Arabia and he needs to think for three years. He needs to work out, because this is a man who memorized the entire Old Testament by heart. He needs to work it all out and think it through. What's going on here, right? And this is why the resurrection is still... He, um, uh, when Jesus rose from the, from the dead, what is it called? It's called the first fruits. So he's the first of this harvest to come. And then the general resurrection is still awaiting us in the second coming. Does that make sense? Then there will truly be the resurrection of the dead. All right. How are we doing in terms of time? All right, we might just do Second Thessalonians. But any any questions? Yes. The thousand years. 
Oh yes. Okay. So uh, the question is, what about the thousand years, right? Revelation twenty. Uh, okay. So the thousand years um, is only in Revelation twenty, right? There's no other references to a thousand years. So I think that's the first thing we should always think about, right? Um, anything that is ex- the thousand years is significant, but the fact that it's a thousand is incidental just to Revelation twenty is the way I would put it, right? I think um, everything that's important in the Bible is repeated like five or six times. So it is so. So the thousand years is connected to so many other things, but the fact that it's a thousand is only in Revelation twenty. I think that's important. So I think people get hung up too much on the literalness of a thousand years. I think in general, all of Revelation, all the numbers in Revelation, is highly symbolic, right? So I think a thousand years just means a long, long, long time. Like when you want to say to some, my kids do this all the time. I'm going to live to a thousand years, or one day I'm going to have a thousand dollars, right? <laughs> right? They just mean a, re- a stupendously huge number that no human being could possibly achieve. They think is a thousand dollars. So, um, if you read the if you read the uh, description of the of the thousand years, the millennium, what what is the description? It's the description that Satan will be bound, and then the church will flourish, right? Um, and then at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released. There will be this uh, uh, climactic battle between Christ and uh, um, and Satan, right? So then, what 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 is that describing? So a lot of people say it's describing a discrete period, right here. Um, and then right before the final new creation, and then some people. Um, will complicate the eschatology a bit by making Christ come three times. So this is the secret coming the, uh, that precedes the thousand years, um, also known as the rapture, right? So Jesus evacuates the church, so then you have this thousand years play out, and then you'll have the true second coming. Um, I think that overly complicates things. Again, this is why, like, I think biblical eschatology could be understood by a, a five-year-old, not needing a PhD. And so what is the thousand year period then? We're in it right now. So I believe Satan is bound, right? Uh, Because the age, the new age, uh, the new creation is already here. And here we have the flourishing of the church. The, The church goes to the ends of the earth. And then there's going to be a climactic final battle. When, say, when Jesus comes, and we're going to actually read about that a little bit in Second Thessalonians. So, does that answer your question? Yeah. So, uh, in eschatology, you probably heard these phrases: premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Um, it's all having to do with uh, that thousand-year period, which I think is like so much emphasis on the millennium when it's talking about something something so much bigger. But uh, my view is all-millennial, which is very close to post-millennial. Post-millennial, let me just describe it first. Uh, post-millennial, all-millennial are the, virtually the same thing, which is that Jesus will come after the millennium, post, after. Pre-millennial, which is the majority view among modern-day Christians, is that Jesus will come before the millennium. So like I said, that little, that, that period, right? Je- Jesus will come as a rapture, Evacuate his um, the, the Gentile Christians, and then the thousand-year clock will start to tick. Um, the difference between post-millennial and all-millennial is only having to do with um, the tribulation. 
So Jesus describes there's going to be a period of tribulation preceding the, uh, uh, his coming back, right? So Amillennial just says, uh, the tribulation is happening now. These are the birth pains of the new creation. Jesus uses that language all the time. The birth pains of the new creation. Have you ever seen a, a woman in labor? She's like in agony, but a baby, happy baby, comes and joyful. So we're in it right now. That's why this age is marked by suffering and grief. Um, the post-millennial view is simply that all of those birth pains, uh, tribulation, was specific to um, uh, uh, the ancient world preceding the, uh, the sacking of Jerusalem right, in AD 70. But that's like, I would require a couple more classes to fully discuss it, but does that answer your question in brief? Okay. All right. Any other questions? Now I'm really just going to do Second Thessalonians. All right. Let's read Second Thessalonians. Um, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those, among all who have believed. All right, so let me just go through a few of the phrases here. It's talking about the second coming of Jesus. The word revealed there is the Greek word apocalypsis. What English word comes from the word apocalypsis? The apocalypse, right. So the apocalypse, which is a shorthand word for, I don't know, some climactic, uh, cataclysmic, uh, disastrous battle, um, actually just comes from the Bible. It just means the revealing of Jesus. The book of Revelation is the apocalypse of John, the revealing of uh, he's talking about the revealing of Jesus. He's talking about the second coming. Um, it says he'll come with his mighty angels. So remember, the Pharisees scoffed, where is your army? Oh, he's coming with an army, an angelic army, when he comes in power and glory. It says he comes with uh, inflaming fire. Fire, all throughout the Bible, is a theophany. The word theophany means an, an appearance, a manifestation of God's presence. Remember Moses in the burning bush and so forth. So when Jesus comes, he's going to come in his divine might, like flaming fire. Um, the Greek word there actually is like, uh, it's like two words stacked on top of each other to emphasize its grandness, like fire that, fire that flames or something like that. Um, so it's just talk, it's, so we're supposed to just imagine like just this ball of fire. <laughs> Um, it says Christ will come in vengeance. Oh, oh yeah, uh, inflicting vengeance. So he's going to come in vengeance um, in the second coming. He comes in mercy in the first coming. So that really helps us when we deal with the evil and injustice of this age. We don't have to do vengeance because Christ will do vengeance. He will met out the perfect justice for all evildoers. We don't need to rectify the situation personally. That doesn't mean, of course, there isn't a place for criminal justice um, through the state. Um, but it reminds me of John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So in His first coming, Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to forgive and show mercy. But the second coming, so this, this in-between ages is a time for repentance. It's a time to turn back to him for forgiveness. But there will be a time when this, when that window will close and Christ will come in vengeance. Um, verse 8, 
It's interesting, it says, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Why does it say that? Why doesn't it say for those who don't believe or have faith in the gospel? Why does it say obey the gospel? I think um, modern-day Christians, we have a poor understanding of the gospel. The gospel is not just to be believed, it's to be obeyed, right? There has to be life transformation, life obedience. Verse 9, it says, um, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. This is the doctrine of hell. And there's a paradox embedded even in that statement, right? Eternal destruction. Because when you say, when you say this word, when you say the sentence, um, I destroyed that chair, what does that mean? It's sort of like a definitive, it happened. There was a chair destroyed, right? Eternal destruction. What does that mean? It's being destroyed forever, over and over, continually, never ending. Jesus uses uh, this language all the time. He talks about hell as the worm that does not die. So what is the worm? What is that in reference to? Um, Worms decompose bodies, right? So Jesus is talking about eternal decomposition. Um, he also says the, the fire that is not quenched. If you throw anything in fire, eventually it's just ashes. But what hell is, is it's burning forever. It's falling apart forever. It's destroying forever. It's decomposing forever. Um, it's a very, very graphic uh, description. You know, people say, um, do you really be- believe in literal hellfire? Well, no. It's just a metaphor. The reality is going to be far worse, right? So what is hell... Uh, he defines it um, away from the presence of the Lord. That's the essence of hell. It's away from Jesus' love, his mercy, his compassion. You know, what is awaiting us in the new creation? One day we'll die. And what is death described as? Sleep. One day Jesus will take our hands and he'll say, it's time to get up. And we'll be in his embrace, in his arms. But hell is to be away from his loving presence forever and ever. Never, never experiencing his mercy, his love. Um... Verse 10, glorified in his saints. Um, this is the glory that was awaiting Christ. Um, and it's amazing that he's going to be glorified in his saints. So he's not glorified just by himself, but with his people. You know, He puts the stake of his glory in his people. So are we secure? We're absolutely secure in our salvation because Christ has put the stake of his glory, his glory in us. Um, and in verse 10, he's going to be marveled at. This is the end of all history, the worship of the Lamb. We're just going to worship him. We're going to uh, fall down on our faces and praise him for his power, for his majesty, and for his mercy, for his uh, sacrificial death. We're going to marvel for all of eternity that God went to the cross. It's going to boggle our minds. We'll never be able to get over it. We'll never be able to plumb the depths of the meaning of that, that the Son of God suffered the shameless, horrific death naked on the cross. Um, so that's the... that's. Second, I have five minutes. I have, well, I have ten minutes if I violate the, the worship service. I could possibly do First Timothy, but I'll leave First and Second Timothy for next time. So any questions for five minutes? No, away from the presence of his love. Oh yeah, yeah, presence of the Lord, right. So, in the, but I want to be very careful because a lot of times people say um, hell is away from God. That's not quite true. It's away from His love, but it's not away from His wrath. So you can say the new creation is mm-hmm. actually filled with 
with the presence of God. Yeah, everything about every description about the New Testament uh, of uh, the new creation is emphasizing God's presence. That's why, for example, there's a lot of descriptions that make me feel a little cringy. Like it says, the New Jerusalem will be covered in streets of gold. I don't have gold aesthetics, so I'm like. That doesn't thrill me, right? It sounds like Donald Trump's New Jerusalem or something, right? Um, but you have to remember what gold represented. Um, in the in the temple, uh, the Holy of Holies was entire. It was a gold box. It was a gold room covered in gold. The Ark of the Covenant was all gold. So gold represents the presence of God. So that's why it's an amazing thing. You could, first of all, a, a, a average Israelite would only hear the description of it only the high, the, the high priest could go in, they would never see that. But what, what is the reality of the New Jerusalem? Even the streets are going to be gold. You know, and then you have to remember, you know, in the ancient world, they didn't have like cheap concrete they could just lay out. So people walked on dirt roads. That's the dirt streets. Even the streets will be covered in gold. That's what it means like God will be everywhere. God will be with us. There will be no sun because he will be our light. There will be no sea because there's no death and chaos. Um, there's this great description, I forget, I think it's in Zechariah, that says even, um, even the common bowls will be holy to, uh, will be like, uh, the vessels in the temple. And it says even the cows will wear bells, holy to the Lord. So everything common will be just like lifted up and, and sanctified. But anyways, I just went off on a huge tangent. Um, is that, is your question about away from the presence of Jesus? Yeah, the idea that heaven and hell yeah. could be described as, as a way or absence of God's goodness in hell yes. versus full of God's goodness in heaven. Yes. Instead of getting so tangled in technology, I mean, technical things. Yes, I think a lot of times the reason why modern people object to the Disneyland, but it never closes and you never get tired, or something like that, right? Material terms, the Bible never talks about heaven and hell in the essence as material terms. It uses material language to help us understand the deeper concept. It's always relational terms. So heaven is not Disneyland. Heaven is to be in the presence of our Lord, to be with Him, worshiping Him, listening to Him at His feet. And what is hell? To be away from Him. And in that sense, it takes the bite out of the injustice of hell for a lot of people. Because hell is not this horrific, you know, um, oven that you're being stuffed into against your will. Hell is already what you're experiencing right now if you're an unbeliever, which is you're away from Jesus. But remember like that um, metaphor I gave of the cave? You're in the cave. You're shivering. You don't believe in the sun. But you're still benefiting from the sun. One day the sun will withdraw. So one day Jesus will withdraw from all unbelievers and they will experience the foreverness of hell. And there will be no repentance because there can be no repentance without the, um, the mediating work of the Spirit. So they will just be filled with grumbling, bitterness, anger, self-pity, just constantly just griping. I'm so upset. I'm so angry. And you just get worse and worse and worse forever. That's hell. What about all the people that say, Lord, Lord, we the people who thought that they were believers. Yes. It seems like they... They know they Jesus? Yeah. Do they know Jesus? I think, the, so the point there is, you know, they may know, they might know the name of Jesus, they might be in the church, they might be familiar with facts about Jesus, but they don't truly have a saving relationship with Him. 
So in essence, you could be in the church and running away from Jesus, right? You could um, you can grow up in a Christian family and hear about the gospel all the time, but not be a believer, and in the end, truly not want him as your savior. You're, you're trying to save yourself. You're looking for another savior other than the savior Jesus. Going back to what? Um, he's, he's still active, right? So um, the Bible describes him as a lion crouching, you know, looking for uh, people to devour. But we don't experience the fullness of his power. Um, we don't experience... So when was the last time in the Bible we saw this climactic spiritual clash between Satan and between... Uh, God's people, you see it in the New Testament. You see it in the early church, and you see it in the ministry of Jesus. There's lots of demon possessions, lots of exorcisms, um, lots of demonic activity. The Apostle Paul encounters lots of people. So Satan's power just roars up, right? Um, and there's this climactic battle, but he's he's defeated, but not yet. You're ready, but not yet. So he's kind of bound. But his fate is sealed when he will truly be thrown into the pits of hell. Um, so that's what I guess what I'm saying when Satan is bound now, so that we ought not to be afraid. We can go boldly out, but of course Satan still has his wiles. So I think this is going to relate to um, whether um, we still experience demonic possession. I'm gonna. That's my next Sunday school class. I'm I'm, I'm gonna talk about um, miracles, uh, speaking in tongues, and so forth. So my view is that we don't see that anymore. The reason is because Satan is bound. We don't see the kind of demon possessions that we saw in the time of Jesus and in the, in the New Testament era because um, Satan is handcuffed. But he's still wily and crafty. He's an evil genius, and um, he's still tempting us and attacking us. Even in, even in chains, he's a formidable enemy. All right, um, let me close with prayer. Almighty God, thank you for this... Uh, Thank you. There's infinite treasures in Scripture. We could spend forever on a single chapter of the Bible and never plumb the full depths of it. What a great adventure awaiting us for the rest of our lives. We could read the Bible. We could read chapter after chapter. I pray that you would give us that desire. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.